Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. So uh, I am glad uh, today, um, it's kind of unusual that I actually have um, uh, my wife's been able to join us here before, and she's sitting just back here. But our three kids who are on Thanksgiving break are actually able to come here. They came to, came to school, so. Um, so glad to have them here, um, here today. And uh, this is the last chapel before Thanksgiving break. And uh, um, anybody ready for break? Yeah. All right, so. All right, I'll just say amen, sit down, make this short. Um, no, but. Uh, well, when I think back to my days in college, and we loved breaks um, and the opportunity to travel and to get some good home-cooked food and things like that, um, but I also really enjoyed the, the experience on campus and um, had great roommates during my time um, in college. And, um, and, and despite having great roommates, there were still some of the kinds of things that we had to work out. Um, and so I won't ask for any personal testimonies today of any things you've had to figure out with roommates in college, but um, you have some of those kind of questions, like how are we going to arrange the room? Um, you know, are we going to stack the beds? Are we going to have um, you know, a couch in there as well? What are we going to do that way as far as the room goes? What time do lights turn out um, and uh, head to bed for the evening? Um, but this time of year raised a very important question. And from what I understand, that this has been a topic of some debate here on campus as well and talking with a few of you. And uh, I think this even might have appeared on the CIU app just a couple of days ago. The important question here, and I, I'm, I realize the risk that I am running right now by raising this question in chapel, is it okay to listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving? <laughs> so I, I, realize, I realize here, now I will let you, I will let you work that out with your roommates. Um, one of my roommates in college, um, I think he had Christmas music on perhaps year-round, um, and he would plug his headphones in from about October through uh, Thanksgiving. As soon as Thanksgiving break ended, the headphone plugs came out, and we had Christmas music running 24-7 in our room, except when it went on mute um, during the evening, um, and that way it went to bed. But um, yeah, so I'll let you, go, you figure that out with your roommate of how you're going to handle that um, here in uh, the hours that remain before Thanksgiving break. Um, but I'm... I realize I may be asking an even a, a more controversial question. Is a Christmas message appropriate before Thanksgiving in chapel? So we will, um, we're going to, I, I know I'm running a risk right now, but we are going to look at, uh, at the Christmas story here prior to Thanksgiving break. And at least I can um, claim kind of exemption to getting out of this because we had our Thanksgiving meal yesterday with family. So we've covered the turkey and uh, mashed potatoes and stuff already in our household. So I think I'm safe that way. But typically, when we look at the, the Christmas story, um, we look at several different questions. Um, one question we look at often is the question of what took place. Um, and uh, we have, um, as we look at um, the Gospels, we see that Jesus, the Son of God, has taken upon um, himself human flesh. We talk about the shepherds and Bethlehem and the circumstances of his birth. And uh, if you want to make sure that you get your nativity scenes right, I would recommend um, highly the work of our seminary dean, Dr. Croto, Urban Legends of the New Testament. I will just say, if you read that before you go home, deal with it gently with family um, that way. Stick, the, stick the, uh, the magi out in the hall on their way to the nativity scene, and that will at least help with some of the, the staging that way. We often look at the how. Um, how did this take place? As we have the work of the Holy Spirit um, working through Mary um, to help facilitate the incarnation. But today, rather than looking at the what or the how, we're going to look at the why. So I invite you to um, look at the Christmas story with me and open up to the first chapter. 
of the book of Hebrews. What I um, wish to explore with you today, the incarnation of the Son, lessons um, from the book of Hebrews, um, the material here that I'll be, be looking at has been drawn from a chapter that I was able to contribute to a volume that's coming out in January um, that was actually edited by our very own uh, Dr. Ed Smither, Dean of, of our Intercultural Studies um, program here, Dr. Ebenezer Erga, um, one of our recent PhD graduates, and uh, Linda Saunders, who's an adjunct faculty member, um, and looking at this theme of the mission of God in the book of Hebrews. And um, in thinking about some of the things that I had opportunity to look at in the research for that, um, I think it really helps as we look at, at Hebrews to deepen our appreciation for why Jesus has come in the flesh. And so I want to share some of those, those thoughts with you today as we look at um, the book of Hebrews. And we're going to start here in Hebrews chapter 1. Um, the person and work of Christ is clearly a central concern in the epistle to the Hebrews. The author of this letter um, provides an exhortation to cling firmly to Jesus, and he warns them of the grave dangers um, here of neglecting the salvation that he has brought. Um, the author of Hebrews refers to the humanity of Jesus throughout the letter, and there doesn't seem to be a doubt on the part of the recipients that Jesus has indeed come in the flesh. Now, we look over at 1 John, we see that may be a, a bit of concern for some other communities. Has Jesus really come in the flesh? But for the recipients of this letter, um, that doesn't seem to be in doubt. But what the author is, is trying to show here is how God has achieved a better salvation through the work of his Son. And so we're going to take a look at three answers to this question, why has Jesus come in the flesh? in our time together here in chapel. Well, as we consider Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to be picking up in, in verse 5, we encounter the first reason why for the incarnation. Why has Jesus come in the flesh? Reason number one, so that Jesus could serve as the Davidic heir. Now, if you do a, a quick word study in the book of Hebrews and search for the name David, it only appears two times in the book, in chapter 4 and chapter 11. And in um, both of those sections, not dealing necessarily directly with Jesus. But in chapter 1, um, we're going to see as we work our way through these quotations um, that the author um, strings together in chapter 1, why Jesus coming as, um, as the uh, Davidic heir is so important. And so the, the question begins in chapter 1, for to which of the angels did he ever say? And this question is repeated at the end of these list of quotations in verse 13, um, although with a little bit of modification. The term son appears a number of times in chapter 1, and some have suggested, well, the difference between Jesus and the angels is that he is called son and the angels are not. But if you read the Hebrew text in the Old Testament, angels are called sons of God. So it can't just hinge on that identification that Jesus is son and the angels are not son. Well, they're called sons of God in Job um, chapter 38, for example. But the issue that the author is looking at is the very unique role played by Jesus. And so we're going to walk through these um, citations, and they'll be up on the screen behind me as we look at what is quoted here in Hebrews and where those are coming from from the Old Testament. And the first one begins here in, um, in uh, verse 5, after this initial question, for to which of the angels did God ever say? Um, and then the quotation, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And this first quotation is from Psalm 2-7. Um, this psalm focuses on the king as the earthly representative of God who executes his justice in the context of rebellious nations. And the statement made in this quotation focuses on God's establishment of the king using this kind of language, that you are my son and today I have begotten you. And so this king represents God um, here. And with this introductory quotation, this is a role no angel could play. It was not to an angel that this was said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The next quotation in verse 5 continues this focus on David and is drawn from a couple different passages in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. And once again, you have this father and son language. 
um, that's highlighted, um, of this promised relationship of, um, of God and this um, establishment of the Davidic line. When we look at this in Psalm 2, we see this idea of this king that God has anointed, that God has um, sent as his representative um, here on earth. The third quotation um, begins with this introduction, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says. Now, before we look at the, the actual quotation here, this language of firstborn, um, we need to pay a little bit of attention to what's going on with this here. Um, my firstborn, our firstborn, is here in chapel today, Henry, um, who just turned 13, by the way, um, so uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So, um, But as parents, there was a time when it was just the two of us. At this point, it's kind of hard to imagine that now. Um, it was just the two of us, and we have three now, Henry, Liza, and Gemma. Gemma just had her birthday, too, and she just turned seven, and Liza's got to wait till March, but she'll be 11 in March. But um, this kind of idea with firstborn, a lot of times we think in terms of birth order. And so the oldest um, here is the firstborn, and then you have the second, and so on, as you, as you work your way down through the family. And some have looked at this and said, well, does this just mean that Jesus is kind of the first created being, that he's the first one, and then you have the rest of creation after? But the kind of language that we see in the New Testament of Jesus as the firstborn likely alludes um, to the passage I have up here noted on the side of Psalm 89. And if we look at Psalm 89, we see God calling David his firstborn. Now, hopefully, if you're in Old Testament survey, I think Crutchfield is past that point now um, in, uh, in the material in Old Testament survey, or if you take an Old Testament survey, um, we have offices that are next to each other. I, I struggle the same as well with making it through um, everything to cover in a semester. But uh, first Samuel, David, is he the firstborn? No, he's the youngest of the sons of Jesse. But God says, I have taken David and made him to be firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And this idea of firstborn is that of preeminence over, um, that this is the exalted king who rules over all. And so when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says here, and uh, this quotation um, likely coming from Deuteronomy 32, although there's a little bit of debate about this, but likely coming from Deuteronomy 32, let all God's angels worship him. And Deuteronomy 32 looks at the uniqueness of God over the idols of the nations. And this verse here that is uh, cited speaks of the exaltation um, here of God over these. All right, the next uh, quotation here comes from uh, Psalm 104 and provides an explicit statement of what angels are. In contrast to what we've seen about the sun, we see this about the angels, um, as we see here. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels' um, winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That they are quick and swift to carry out God's will, to do his bidding. Next, we turn back to the sun in the quotation from Psalm 45. And as noted in the opening verses of the psalm, um, the king is addressed as one blessed by God. And the citation comes from verses 6 and 7 and addresses God's establishment of the king. And uh, the statement that's, that's noted here, um, here, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Um, this reference to your throne, O God, could be in reference to God's throne that the king possesses. But it appears more likely, and especially in the way that the author of Hebrews reads this, that this is in reference to the king as the anointed one. Um, the second to last quotation, and so as we continue down through this list here, um, comes from Psalm 102 and deals with the eternality of God and his rule, despite the present experience of suffering on the part of the psalmist. In contrast to creation, which fades and passes away, that perishes, God remains. His reign endures. The final quotation comes from Psalm 110, verse 1. 
And we have a similar question yet again, for to which of the angels, um, here has he ever said, with the anticipated answer, to no angel has he ever made this statement. And then we have this quotation, sit at my right hand until I've made your enemies a footstool for your feet. This quotation is the climax of these series of quotations in chapter one. And noting yet again that this was spoken to no angel, but to the king, God's representative. And we're gonna come back to this passage in Psalm 110 in just a moment um, here. But these promises to the heir of David, the one in David's line, the Davidic king, have been fulfilled not by any angel. No angel could ever fulfill that role, but by the son. Although Jesus here is the eternal divine son, second person of the Trinity, these promises are not fulfilled solely in his deity, but rather Jesus' divine sonship, because he is son of God, necessitates him coming in human form here, in the line of David, being born as a human. God's determination to bring about the fulfillment of these promises necessitated the coming of the Son in the flesh. No angel could do this. Only the Son of God could do so. Well, we're going to turn attention now to a second reason why Jesus has come in the flesh, and that is so Jesus could become our great high priest. And this theme is surely central to Hebrews, and um, Perhaps for us, this isn't really too controversial. Um, we talk about Jesus being um, here, our great high priest. We're used to that kind of language as followers of Jesus. Um, but in that context of the first century world, this was a really quite controversial thing. Um, now, some of you are in process of thinking about what's going to happen after graduation. Um, and I've had conversations with some of you of what's going to be next here. And we're probably well aware in the process of trying to find a job that qualifications are important um, that way. And some of you are planning on going on and getting a, a master's degree or even a doctoral degree because of what you want to do, that you need those qualifications. And, um, and so hopefully as you're thinking through that and looking for jobs, you're thinking, well, how do I meet um, you know, these kind of qualifications and fit these job descriptions? And hopefully you are thinking about that. Your parents are hoping that you're thinking about that and looking for something after graduation. Um, but uh, we see the way in which that, that functions in our, in our world for those that can fill roles appropriately. Um, any NFL fans in the room? Any, any Colts fans? All right, the one in the, in the balcony up there, two in the balcony. Yeah, there's been just a little bit of controversy um, uh, here recently with the Indianapolis Colts that um, they've hired a new head coach who has no coaching experience at a professional level, no coaching experience at a college level, and has coached at a high school level. Now, he played in the NFL, and uh, yeah, well, we'll see how that turns out. Um, I think he's one and one so far, um, and uh, well, it's the, the victory was the Raiders, um, so anybody I think can beat the Raiders at this point now. So we'll see what, uh, what actually pans out. But it's quite shocking here. Is he qualified for this kind of um, position? Now, this idea of Jesus as our great high priest, again, we probably don't look at this and say, well, is Jesus really qualified? Can he really do this? But if we look in the context of the first century world and we think about the qualifications for the high priest and what they were meant to be from the tribe of Levi, from the line of Aaron, was meant to be a hereditary high priesthood of one born into Aaron's line. And as we look at the history um, in between the Old Testament and New Testament, um, we see in the second century BC competing families bribing a foreign official to become high priest. People that have no right to be high priest. And why are they high priest? They sent more money than the last guy to the foreign ruler. And then you have the Jewish revolt against this foreign ruler. And the line of leaders um, here, um, one of them becomes high priest. Now he's a Levite, but not from the right line. And so you have now this priesthood being passed down through this line, 
that's, again, not from the right high priestly line. And by the time that you get to the New Testament, you have this rotation um, of high priests uh, that are serving in this kind of role, not in the way that God had laid things out in the Mosaic Law. And so if we go even a little earlier in Old Testament history, we see Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament. He offers a sacrifice that he was not supposed to, and God brings judgment as a result of that. And so this question, well, with Jesus being our great high priest, how can he serve in this sort of role? Um, is he just some kind of imposter, like those that bribe their way into this kind of position? Or are early Christians just kind of making this up on the fly? That, uh, that sounds good. Let's just call Jesus our high priest. Um, we can put that on our uh, bumper stickers on our chariots or whatnot and, and uh, you know, use that as a slogan. Or, or is Jesus truly qualified to be high priest? How can Jesus serve in this role? And this is where Psalm 110 comes into the picture. Now, Psalm 110 looms large in the language and imagery of Hebrews, um, and it's a very unusual psalm. And uh, I love Psalm 110, but it is weird. Um, and I think I have Crutchfield's okay to, to say that here about, uh, about Psalm 110. It is a weird psalm. Um, there are a lot of details that just don't make a whole lot of sense. Um, it's a royal psalm. We see the kingship themes. We see the way that, the, um, that this individual spoken of executes God's um, judgment over the nations, as we see in verses 2 and 5 and 6. And we see the connection with David here. Um, and uh, the first part of this is given as a divine oracle, that you have the Lord, Yahweh, speaking to my Lord. Well, who is my Lord? And um, we'll come back to this here in, in just a moment. Um, also cryptic in this psalm is this reference to this guy named Melchizedek. And I'm sure I could get into a, another controversy here in chapel and looking at um, all the debate about Melchizedek. Yes. Uh, so, um, yeah. I, and uh, probably as you have encountered in theology, there's a little bit of debate. Um, was Melchizedek a, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ? Um, or is he um, here a figure that anticipates the priesthood as kind of a type that way? Um, so I have my view on that. Um, you can talk to Dr. Rogers after chapel and he'll tell you why I'm wrong on that. So, <laughs> But um, this, this particular reference to Melchizedek is kind of a, um, as one author puts it, a surprising twist in the psalm. Um, as you have um, this reference to Melchizedek and his priesthood, and Melchizedek only appears in one other place in the Old Testament, in Genesis 14, where he meets Abraham and blesses him as Abraham returns from the battle of these, um, with these kings in that chapter. The narrative just introduces Melchizedek, he blesses Abram, we have this brief exchange, and then he's gone, until Psalm 110, and he shows up again with this very odd reference to being a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so, as we look at um, this particular psalm, it is unusual and then we look at the New Testament and some of the controversies that arise in the ministry of Jesus. Psalm 110 shows up in some of the exchanges between Jesus and the religious officials and um, notes this connection here that Messiah is meant to be David's son, but then how is it that David says this? I mean, he's the head of the line. Why should he speak of his son in this sort of manner? And we see this in Mark, we see this in Luke, and in Matthew in particular, that he highlights this in a series of controversies where Jesus poses this question to the religious officials and they have no response. Well, how is it that this is then fulfilled? Now, in the context, Jesus simply asks the question. The rest of the New Testament does help to fill this in as um, the apostles realize that this is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, the one born into David's line as great David's greater son, that he is the one that David can speak of as the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, as we look through the book of Hebrews, we see Psalm 110 appearing again and again. And, um, and one author um, identifies this as the master key for unlocking the argument of the book of Hebrews. 
Um, and we're not going to take um, here an extensive exploration. Unless you guys want to hang out for Thanksgiving break here, we can just walk through uh, the book of Hebrews for the next several days. So, uh, all right, well, um, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to the two of you after chapel that way, and we'll just keep going here. Um, I'll give you a little summary here of um, what we see in the book of Hebrews. So, Psalm 110, so the priesthood of Jesus in the book of Hebrews, we see, um, first, that it was not based on human descent. It's not because it's been passed on to father, from father to son to grandson and so on that Jesus has this priesthood. It's a priesthood that's not based on human descent. It is predicted and confirmed with an oath directly from God, as we see in chapter 7. It is a direct appointment to the priesthood as God speaks directly of great David's greater son, that you are a priest. We see this in chapter 5. It's not predicated on the expectation of death, unlike the priesthood of Aaron, where Aaron would die, pass it on to his son. He would die onto his son. This just simply is a priesthood that endures. Um, it's not associated with the tribe of Levi or the line of Aaron, which is very important because Jesus was from what tribe? Judah, from the tribe of Judah. It's not from the, the tribe of Levi. It's associated with an eternal sanctuary and a new covenant, as we see in chapter 7 and 8, and characterized by a completed sacrifice, as we see in chapter 7, 8, and 10. And as Jesus was born in the flesh in the line of David, the promises of Psalm 110 enable Jesus to be our great high priest, offering a sacrifice for us once and for all, not the sacrifices again and again and again like we see in the Old Testament system, but a once and for all sacrifice taking care of my sin, taking care of your sin um, here on the basis of faith in what Christ has done for us. So we've seen two reasons so far. We come now to reason number three. Um, so why did Jesus come in the flesh? Why the incarnation? So Jesus could minister faithfully on our behalf. And this is wonderful news for us. As we look at um, this faithful ministry um, here, that um, it's not just simply that Jesus has this title, but what is the effect for us? And um, I want to explore just a couple different ways that that is um, reflected in the book of Hebrews. Um, one here, that we see the sacrifice of Christ. I mentioned this already, that this sacrifice, because he is our high priest and our perfect high priest, he could offer himself as sacrifice for our sins. Um, and we see this theme emerging particularly in chapters 8 to 10 um, with the shedding of his blood on our behalf. The second area, I'm going to spend just a little bit more time on, on this um, here, as we look at the role that Jesus plays in making intercession for us. That he isn't, as our great high priest, one that has just gone, done his thing in Jerusalem and ascended to heaven and now um, is present in the heavenly sanctuary um, that way and just kind of separated from us. But Jesus ministers on our behalf, making intercession for us. And um, a couple of different texts where this emerges. In chapter 2, um, the author here asserts that Jesus has been made perfect. That's a kind of interesting reference because, well, does Jesus need to be made perfect? I mean, isn't he perfect already as the divine son, the eternal son of God. And this could appear to suggest moral perfection, that um, he is somehow moving here from um, here imperfection to perfection. But the term, when we look at some of the usage in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually refers to um, here qualification for the priesthood. And we see references in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers um, for how Jesus um, here, like the priests in the Old Testament, were qualified, made perfect for this role. Um, but more than just this here, we see the, um, in chapter 5 that this involved learning obedience um, here from what he suffered. And again, the author doesn't appear to be arguing that Jesus um, here was disobedient and he became obedient. He learned to be obedient as, um, as we experience um, here in uh, our growth. Um, the author affirms Jesus was without sin. 
But this occurs again in chapter 10 in reference to Psalm 40. And the psalmist um, contrasts in that context what um, here is not desired in the offering um, here merely of, of these sacrifices, but with the posture of obedience. And so the author places these words on Jesus' lips as he comes into the world, and in doing so, linking the incarnation with obedience to the will of God. Well, in what sense did, was Jesus then made perfect in that he learned obedience? Well, I think what this entails is that Jesus, by coming in the flesh, gained um, here experiential knowledge of what it means to obey God in the midst of the struggles of human life. And as such, Jesus fully understands what you and I go through. And his obedience, perfect through his life, was in the context of the kinds of experiences that we face. The author, again, um, makes this connection between Jesus and his priesthood and his people in chapter 5. And we're going to look, take a look at, at one passage here in chapter 2 as um, we have this connection between his humanity and um, his priesthood. As um, he says here that um, the children um, here take part in flesh and blood, that he likewise took part of these, uh, partook of these same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so because we have flesh and blood and experience life here, Jesus came and took on flesh so that he could meet us in the things that we face. The angels, as he notes here, that's surely not them that he helps. He wastes no time on aiding the angels, but he um, devotes his attention and his ministry to helping you and me in the kinds of things that we face. In chapter 4, the author returns to this and reminds us that our high priest is not one that is kind of aloof in the heavens, but one um, here who understands what we have faced and is able um, here, um, as we seek mercy and grace in the situations of life, that, um, that we are able now to draw confidently before him, knowing that he makes intercession for us, um, that he has provided this great salvation for us and sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And at this point in the semester, um, I know many are very tired uh, from the stresses of um, papers to get done. I know I'm responsible for some of that um, that way. So um, I see a couple of my students that are finishing some things up for a due date tonight uh, for one of my classes. Um, we all experience that at this point in the semester. Um, but there are all the other kinds of struggles in life, the unexpected um, illnesses and you know, physical challenges and things that take place. Um, I know for some, going back home over Thanksgiving break or Christmas break is, is a delight. For others, going back to situations at home that are less than ideal, um, where there is that kind of struggle, um, relational discord and, and, and struggles with, um, with friends or with a significant other, um, that these kinds of things that we experience in life, and sometimes we're tempted to think that we are the only one that, that knows what we're going through, that we're left alone in those kind of struggles. And the beauty of Jesus' high priestly ministry here is that he understands that he has lived life here on earth that he has faced suffering and hardship, and because of that, he can relate to us and what we face. And what an encouragement that is as we can encounter these things in life. One final area just to look at this in terms of his high priestly ministry um, here on our behalf, and um, that also emerges here in, in chapter two, that not only has Jesus in his death provided a sacrifice for our sins as our high priest, not only does he minister um, here to us at present, in his high priestly role at the right hand of God. 
but he also brings about the fulfillment of God's promises. And uh, in chapter 2, um, that the, the author, as he continues to make this contrast between Jesus and the angels, notes um, here that it's not to angels that he has submitted um, here the world to come, but, is, but to one who is a human. And the author quotes here from um, Psalm 8, and uh, looking at how it is um, underneath um, here the, um, the feet of a man, of a son of man, that God has placed all things. And read together with Psalm 110, that Jesus, because he has come in the flesh, he is the one that ultimately will bring about what God has promised for us in the future. So not only does Jesus meet our needs in the, um, here in his work in the past, at present, but also in the future as well. And he is, in that way, our great high priest that ministers um, here to us. All right. Well, as demonstrated in the exploration of these themes from Hebrews, the divine son has come in the flesh. And the incarnation was essential for him to fulfill this role of messianic heir and to become our great high priest, to minister to us a greater salvation. Um, the author of Hebrews articulates this in, this in this narrative structure that he has come, he has fulfilled this, this is his present ministry, and we look forward to the future. And this, rescue, this plan here was no kind of last-ditch effort um, that God was trying to um, here um, bring about this kind of um, last-minute rescue attempt or um, to uh, deal with an unexpected failure to the plan that he had laid out in the past. But the author demonstrates again and again and again that this was God's plan all along. As we look at um, here key figures um, in institutions such as Abraham and Moses, the Old Covenant, um, the priesthood, the sanctuary, the sacrifices, God's promise of rest, all of these things within the Old Testament, that they're coming to their fulfillment now in what Christ has done for us. And so as the author looks at this truth that Jesus has come in the flesh, it makes an incredible difference for what he is accomplishing here on our behalf. And as the author asserts in chapter 2 and chapter 7, in, this, uh, in a statement that um, I encourage you to take a look at um, later on here, in chapter 210 and verse 726, the author notes that it was fitting for the people of God to have such a great high priest, um, which is an incredible thing to think about, not because we deserved it, but because God had determined to give us such a Savior. And so I suppose in certain ways, in looking at this theme in the book of Hebrews, that um, this is both a Christmas message and maybe a Thanksgiving message as well. We see the why of Christmas, why Jesus has come in the flesh, why he came to accomplish this for us. And as we head into Thanksgiving break, it is appropriate for us also to give thanks for what God has done for us in Christ. Um, as we close here, I'm going to um, go ahead and lead us in prayer, and then Dr. Rogers is going to come up um, just after here and, and uh, finish out our time in chapel together. So, Father, we thank you for what you have accomplished through your son. We thank you that he has come in the flesh. And even in the midst of all the busyness at the end of this semester, um, Father, help us to be mindful of what we look forward to in celebration of the coming of your Son, of what that means for us at present in whatever we may face. And ultimately, as we look toward the promises in the future, God, thank you for accomplishing this by sending your Son. And uh, Father, as we um, experience the things that we are experiencing here in life, um, both good and bad, we thank you that we can come before your throne to seek mercy and grace and to find those things because of the high priestly ministry of your son who has come in the flesh for us. And God, we just thank you for this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.